And that's the Smiths with a track titled You Just Haven't Earned It Yet, Baby. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some... You should always play in the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest, because we always love one, is going to be Emma Pollock from the Delgado. So I'm going to bring that interview to you for in four easy-to-digest little segments for your excitement. So expect the usual quality chat and music and much, much more. But to get the party on the road, I think I'll play your favourite and mine. This is the Delgados and the track titled Coming In From The Cold. Step inside A better dream job you could never find A set of keys and bottles heaven wide Find yourself a seat and settle and fall around Raise your glass We're gonna drink now till the summer's past 
And that's the Delgados with a track called Coming In From The Cold. That came from their 2002 album titled Hate, which was their fourth studio album, which featured lots of strings and reverb, so they say. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Emma Pollock from the Delgados, because we spoke to each other a few months ago, probably even longer, um, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy sort of stuff. So, as I said, I'll be bringing that interview in probably chopped up into four easy-to-digest little segments. Otherwise, it could just be too much chat and not enough music. But before all that and the next track, I think we should have it admin, because I do love admin. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. I normally reply within 24 hours, but not always. And also, all the shows that I've been doing for the last two and a half years have been um, archived, so you can get them on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud, and... um, Yes, there you go, those four. So do check them out. Uh, C86 show, they're all there and much, much more. But before we have the first part of the interview, I think we'll play another track by the Delgados. This is titled The Light Before We Land. I think you'll like it.
There you go. That's the Delgados with the track titled The Light Before We Land. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Emma Pollock, where we've been talking about everything and uh, the life in music. Plus, um, yes, how do you make a career of it now? Um, And then we got into the first part of the interview, which was when I asked about the background and the early years of the band and how it all came into fruition. And this was her answer. Emma... Take it away. Where did it start? I met I met Paul Savage, who is now my husband and was in the Delgados as a drummer. Um, and he's now a producer, engineer. Uh, I met him at university in Glasgow, Strathclyde University. And I moved here in 1989 from a small town called Castle Douglas in Galloway, southwest Scotland. And uh, up until that point, I'd really been listening to the charts. And my only record store was Woolworths. And maybe you had John Menzies in uh, Dumfries. That was about it, really. And I didn't even, I wasn't really that aware of John Peel, if I was being really honest. Um, so I moved up to Glasgow and in 1989 and didn't really meet Paul. We were both studying the same thing. And um, didn't really meet him until properly, until maybe the second second year of, of university. And then in third year, which would have been about 19, 
92 or something, we started going out together. And immediately, you know, we, we started talking about music and he was trying to learn how to be an engineer. He had a, he had a little four-track Tascam um, it, it studio, little four-track studio, which was based on cassette only. And I was, I'd started to write songs at that point. So um, he was in a band called Bubblegum and they unceremoniously, three of them were chucked out. And the three that were chucked out were Alan, Stuart and Paul. Wow, what happened to Bubblegum? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's a, it's a bit... Got, like, yeah, that's a fantastic couple, moment. Yeah, they got a couple of um, fairly damning damning reviews, I think, to be honest. Um, um, and, and yeah, they, there had been six people in that band and, 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 and there was a... There was a, an artistic division, um, and and so three of them were chucked out. And then because I I would I was already kind of writing songs and and this was probably ninety four by this point. Graduated in ninety three, ninety four. The guys turned around and said, "Listen, we're going to form a new band. Emma, do you want to join?" And I said, "Yes, definitely." And uh, and that was it. That that was the the Delgados. Right. And you obviously you were saying you were sort of writing lyrics. So was in your childhood kind of writing poetry and things like that part of your sort of uh, teenage makeup? Well, you see, I was a science head uh, and still kind of am. So actually, no, I was never. I mean, I did I did study music up until I was fifteen. Didn't take it to higher level for some reason. Should never have done French. <laughs> I, really reg- I really regret that. Um, but no, I was I was studying. I mean, Paul and I studied physics at university. That's how we met. And uh, and so no, I was never. I mean, I did all. I, I did write a poem for the school magazine. Um, I think I think it was pretty cringeworthy. <laughs> I think it was pretty right on. Um, I, I really hope no one ever finds that. Um, yes. But. I, I, do you know what? I was always a huge, huge music fan, and I would, I would ask friends to come round after school, and we'd just sit and listen to albums. But they were all pop albums. Yeah, excellent. And, and then in, in sixth year at high school, I had a bit of a crisis because I thought I really liked metal, and I started listening. Well, rock. I started discovering rock and, and metal, and started listening to ACDC and, and Iron Maiden and Metallica, and uh, and Black Sabbath. All of which are completely different bands. But at the same time, they kind of all felt like they were not pop. So it, I didn't know who it was because I still wanted to listen to Nick Kershaw. And I, I just got really, really confused. And then I discovered someone let me borrow the New Order uh, singles compilation, Substance. And that kind of changed everything for me. It, it, it was a really pivotal album for me because it was it was the first time I'd understood that there could be a really dark edge to pop music. Yes. Which Nick 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 Kershaw definitely didn't have, did he, actually? Which was no, good. no. I mean, fantastic melody and great energetic pop music, but no, it wasn't quite it wasn't New done. Order. <laughs> no. But it was, in, it was interesting because I sort of grew up obviously being older than you and um that's not boasting that's just fact actually but <laughs> so but it sounds a bit boasty doesn't it? I'm all, but um so yes my I had an old brother he was really into prog this was in the sort of I suppose the mid to late 70s and he was really into prog rock so I've got a bizarre um kind of understanding of prog rock plus also heavy metal as well so I also went through a bit of a heavy metal phase which was quite unfashionable at um, at the time 
Yeah. Can, can you hear that, by the way? There's, there's work going on in the house next door. Oh, God. I thought it was just my... God, I thought this internet connection has gone really gone down. No, no, that, that's, uh, that's the joiner next door. Wow. I don't know what they're doing. They've been there for a long time. They have been there a long time, haven't they? they have, yeah, they, they, they really have. Months, in fact. No, um... Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. So, uh, so it was interesting when you mentioned some of those bands because actually I grew up loving Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and then got really into Motorhead as well. But, but kind of as a side thing as well, not sort of like that was my music. But then actually listening to the lyrics of Black Sabbath, especially their early stuff, was like, wow, this is so depressing and personal as well which was almost kind of almost like the same stuff that joy division was singing about as well so it was kind of it was kind of interesting but but i just i just knew it wasn't kind of fashionable to like heavy metal during that phase though on saying that everybody at school liked status quo and if you said anything about status quo you'd get beaten up but some of the reason quo fans were really passionate never liked status quo didn't understand it <laughs> it was the silliest music I'd ever heard. <laughs> I know, but but their fans were really kind of like very guarded yeah. about status quo, so no one ever mess, yeah. me- mentioned the quo. So yeah, mm-hmm. so that's kind of interesting then that um, from your science background, though I think Brian May was also from the science world as well, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He he went back to um, he went back actually to complete his PhD. That's after. right. Aye, yeah. So yeah. Yes. So yeah. So so with a lot of bands that I've sort of done interviews with, um, they often have a bit of a five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they make a bit of a single, and obviously at that point, or they make a bit of a sound, mostly with covers, and then a few of their own numbers, and they're just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody else that they can emotionally blackmail to um, come along. But then if John Peel played them, that would give them that moment of kind of exposure, which would get them out and about and possibly touring a bit and playing other gigs and then that first album so did the Delgado sound come together quite quickly yeah it did actually I mean it's funny you talking about doing covers because we never really did that we always we always felt that that was not really the point of being in a band um that why why would you waste your time right you know playing a song that someone else had already written when you you would you would you know be immediately display something of your own character if you were to concentrate on on playing only your own material um and I, it's 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 a it was quite a an absolutist kind of way of going about it i mean yeah we did eventually do a couple of covers but to be honest that was usually because they were requested and you know one of the peel sessions that we did john actually asked us to do four covers and he he came up with three of them, and, I, and and we suggested one, or 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 no, he suggested one, and each of us all kind of came up with ideas. But but yeah, we were always very much um, wanted to find our own sound, create our own sound. But because Glasgow in 1994 was absolutely teeming with bands, um, there was a huge interest from uh, London. In, uh, in what was happening. Bell and Sebastian were, were kind of breaking at the same time, about 95. Um, and we ended up getting a publishing deal really, really, really quickly uh, with Ireland. Um, and we, I, th- I think, was it Ireland we were published with? I think it was. We were published for one album or something like that, or two two albums maybe. Um, and that that very, very quickly led to us making the decision to just get a record made 
but the question was, were we going to try and get <clears throat> a London record company to put it out? I mean, we did we did have a few offers, but none of them were none of them were good enough or convincing enough for us to want to jump into a relationship with a a London label that we knew nothing about that were four hundred miles away. Yes, this is tricky. Was, yeah, and and we were we were very quickly beginning to realise that Glasgow had such a, a a huge amount of resources. You know, you've you've got everything up here. You've got you've got everything from the first music shop where you would maybe buy your first instrument, right through to some of the biggest venues. Well, the biggest venues in Scotland, really. Um, and rehearsal rooms and recording studios and so we, we basically just thought there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't just press a few of our own record and just see how it goes and that and, and that was basically why we formed Chemical Underground but but it was it it was also genuinely with a view to helping other artists that we already knew and and one of them was Bess they were all, yes. yeah they were one of the first signings and I remember distinctly seen a gig of theirs in, in the 13th note in Glassford Street in Glasgow. And then we just approached them in that in that that hallway afterwards in, in, in that, that venue and just kind of said, oh, we really, really love what you're doing. Could, could we put out could we put out a single? <laughs> and it was kind of a handshake deal. Which is always the best way to start any business. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Emma Pollock from the Delgados. Still lots more of that, I can tell you, to um, come. But I think we should play some music to break it up and to uh, give you a chance to tap your toes and sort of sing along to some exciting songs. This is going to be another track by the Delgados. If you're a fan of the band, this is solid gold, easy action. Fill your boots. If you're not, then you should be. Anyway, this is a track titled I Fought the Angels.
indeed. More chart band sounds from the Delgados. That was a track titled I Fought the Angels that came from their album Universal Audio. Indeed, he says, looking at his notes. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Emma Pollock, where I was talking about those early years of, um, yes, going from one a, a do, from a degree to being both in a band and also starting a record label. And how did that all work out? Anyway, Emma? Take it away. Um, yeah, I guess I guess it was a really quick transition because when you're when you're in your forties, which of course is where I am now, five years feels like five minutes. And when you're when you're when you're that age, still early twenties or mid twenties, then the two years from graduation, I think I think let's see, it must have been about ninety four that I graduated, uh, or or ninety three probably. Um, and within two years, yeah, I was in a band and we were releasing our, our debut album. And a year later, we were touring the States. So it it was, it was the first five years of Chemical Underground were absolutely remarkable because the, mar- the music industry was still growing. I mean, it's funny because when you take the long view and look at the history of recorded formats, um the the vinyl had its peak at, in the, at the end of the the 70s and the major music industry were having an absolute meltdown in the early 80s because they thought oh my god it's all coming to an end what are we going to do because vinyl had reached its peak but then of course the cd came out and everybody was able to buy the same records all over again um but that cd's being the thing continued until the year 2000 so we kind of got in under the wire with chemical underground Yes. You've got that. I mean, you look at it and you think, wow, those first five years were astonishing. Well, no wonder, because the the industry was still growing. It was still it was still on an upwards curve. And, you know, at our fifth birthday uh, party at the garage in Glasgow, we had John Peel comparing. And I think he, he described Delgado's as, as possibly one of the best bands in the world at the time or something like that. And it was it was just a dream come true. The whole thing, honestly, if you could bottle that, you know. Yes, it, it, well, it was it was quite amazing because also that was interesting. Having seen a lot of these documentaries, which go out on BBC Four on a Friday night, and that period of music, the Britpop period, where you know the CD was coming and it was incredibly cheap to manufacture but expensive to sell. So obviously the record companies were making a fortune, and I think most of them. Where and they weren't though, because the, the the one thing I'd have to jump to the industry's defence a wee bit is that the amount of money that has to be spent to put any record on the map, it's really got nothing to do with the cost of a CD and everything to do with how much it made to it cost to make the record and then market it. And it was a it it was a very, very, very expensive business back then. But the the point is that there were enough people buying records. So that if one out of 20 signed artists were to really, really make it big, they paid for the other 19 that made a loss. And and that's why the music industry was able to support so many bands at the time. And they were able to go around and, and give people a chance. So even though the music industry was much maligned and people kind of loved to hate it, it, it was responsible for an absolutely wonderful cultural richness of, of music coming out then, which yes. we don't anymore yes this is true actually 
Yes, I think just one or two people who spoke about that period would also realise they'd slightly de- developed sort of unhealthy drug habits. But um, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other industry, isn't it? Really, but um, but obviously, but did you feel part of that kind of uh, kind of I suppose musical zeitgeist that was happening during that period? Because because obviously, you know, like you look back and we like to sort of pigeonhole things and put them in chapters. But did you sort of did you feel part of that world that was kind of exploding? Do you know what? Uh, no, I don't think we did because we were we were just perpetually paranoid that we. I, I think I think we did I think we did suffer from imposter syndrome quite a bit because even though we were running this record company that was that could do no wrong for the first five years because every record we put out sold really really well and you know we had Biss on top of the pops uh, they they were the first quote unquote, unsigned band on top of the Pops. And if you look up the footage, you'll see that they're introduced as the first unsigned band to ever be on top of the Pops, which absolutely we were we were raging about because clearly they were signed to Chemical Underground, for God's sake. It's just that they wouldn't recognise us. Um, so even though we were really active in the scene and we were doing something that, looking back on it, was really quite important, Delgado's artistically, we, we never really felt that we were that we were doing anything that people really were clambering to or clamouring to to be part of. It we I, I think sometimes we did genuinely feel like we were hanging on by virtue of the friends that we made. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's only and the company that we kept. But but I think the years since have encouraged certainly me to feel very, very proud of the records that we made. It's just that you got to remember that you were competing with every damn band that was also out at the time. And we were sharing bills with bands like Sonic Youth and Spiritualized, but feeling like the poor cousin that had been invited along as well sometimes. And and it's just because Delgados were, we were an odd fit sometimes. We weren't an easy band. We we, we didn't just write sunny pop tunes that, that were, you know, easy to get your head around. But we weren't, we, we did have a darkness to us, but it wasn't, it wasn't a. Uh, nothing was clear cut. I guess it was quite opaque. Yes. Um, and and I think maybe, yeah, we had a lot of absolutely diehard fans, but the mainstream never really got it. Um, and I think that 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 was quite frustrating for us. Yeah, it's interesting because because having spoke to a few people who started record labels. Actually, all of them, and they didn't last that long. There was like a Claire from Sarah, Claire and Matt from Sarah Records, and then um, the guy from Ron Johnson, Dave Parsons, and uh, oh yes, the Pink Label, uh, Paul Sutton, who from you know the eighties. I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them that I spoke to, they didn't really have an idea of what they were doing for a while, so they were going. I, what's an invoice and oh how do you do this so they had to make it up on the spot and yeah. obviously you know us being the fan we're like oh this is great you're putting out all these records for them they were playing catch up um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and and so and sort of like how do we do this and how do we do that and ask somebody and then they go and do it and then sort of slowly got their head around it but then there came that point where they felt like after about five years actually I've had a great time but I need to go go to bed and have some rest and so kind of had to give it up so how did you manage to sort of learn and work out how that whole sort of running a label went um well to be honest Stuart Henderson who was the bass player in Delgado's was also an accounts graduate um 
I had gone to do a bookkeeping course in 1997, as soon as we started Kim 19 Recording Studio, which is still alive and well today and where Paul is right now. I manage it. Uh, Paul is the, the main producer there and, you know, the studio's been going for over 20 years. Um, Chemical Underground still going. We're just kind of, you know, concentrating on reissues at the moment because it's a, a very, very difficult landscape to put out new records in. So we're just taking a wee break from that right now. But do you know what it is? It's about the fact that we were we were fortunate enough to be there at a time when there was enough money flying about. We were fortunate enough to be uh, to be working alongside Beggar's Banquet, who basically took a lot of our catalogue and, and distributed it in Europe. We we had licensing deals with Matador in the States. Um, we were, you know, we were we were working with really really big, uh, and quite powerful independent record companies around the world, and they they all generated enough money uh, for the the UK setup to be to be to be basically bankrolled by it to to some extent. So, you know, in 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 the year 2000, 2001, two three, you know, we were we were still we were still selling an awful lot of records and there was still enough enough funds coming through to to be able to release any any new bands that we fancied. It's just that maybe looking back on it, the the marketing spend on some of these records was 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 maybe quite excessive and we we probably started losing a bit of money on some records in the you know the mid the mid two thousands and then it 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 just started to really decline from that point on. It got harder and harder. Yes, that's tricky. Well, we were we were pretty well organised. I I have to say. I mean, it, we we had an accountant. We we, I mean, all right. We didn't we didn't we didn't sit down and meet very often. That has to be said. We pretty haphazard uh, planning, but it was it was the. As, as long as there was enough money to pay the wages, because we had we had staff, you know, we had a, a label manager when Delgados were together. Because when we went to the states for five weeks at a time, or went to Europe for three weeks at a time, we weren't really able to run the label very effectively from the back of a tour bus. No, uh, indeed, that would be tricky. Anyway, I hope you're making notes because I will test you at the end. That is the second part of my interview with Emma Pollock from the Delgados. Um, still a little bit more of that. Probably quite a lot, actually. So I'm going to break it up with another track. Check me out with my uh, musical um, ditties. This is going to be another. Tra- um, this is another track by the Delgados, just for a change. This is taken from their second album, Peloton. This is a um, a song titled "Pull the Wires from the Wall." It's got the most amazing atmospheric vocal- vocals I've ever heard. Check it out. Creeping round my house at dawn I'll keep my curtains closed If you're feeling fond of feeling wrong Fully clothed For a second See through 
Told you, it was going to blow your mind. That is the Delgados, and that's the track titled Pull the Wires from the Wall. That's taken from their second studio album, Peloton. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Emma Pollock from the band, where I was talking about that um, interesting theory I have about most bands, the five-year narrative, and also about when they um, anybody goes to America, they often come back quite damaged in an emotional, physical and spiritual way and that's often another thing that finishes a lot of groups off. Anyway, I mentioned this to Emma and this was her response. Emma, how did it go post-America? God, I would have been devastated if we'd broken up immediately coming back because that, that would have been just our probably our first record and that, that would be it. Um, no, we were, do you know what? I mean, we were genuinely really, really lucky. We were not on a major. We were... We, we, we had a really big fan in Martin Mills. You see, Martin Mills, the head of Beggar's uh, Banquet, who started Beggar's Banquet and what, what was to eventually become 4AD as well and Ouija and all of those, all of those, um, that, that, that group, uh, the Beggar's group really now has, has become 4AD. Mm. Uh, but we had a great relationship with Martin. Martin had a huge amount of time and interest and love for the Delgados primarily. And as a result of that, he basically put out four out of five of our albums in America. And uh, we had, essentially, we had tour support uh, for America and, and Europe. And so we didn't really need to take on the the burden or the risk of touring at the losses that you made every time, which were colossal, because we were taking strings with us to America. We were on a tour bus. We were driving from one, you know, from Canada, where you would hire the bus and the equipment because it was cheaper. And then you would you would drive down and do your East Coast shows and then you would you would you would drive for three days across to the West. And, you know, we'd be away in America for four or five weeks at a time. And it was it was an an incredible thing to be afforded the opportunity to do because we weren't really picking up the bill. I mean that I, I mean I go back to the, the the music industry at the time afforded bands like us the opportunity to do that because even though we would never see a royalty because our advances were too too big um, and our, our tour support was too big. And so the royalties that we made on actual record sales were never enough to swap, to, to, to actually make that back. So we never really saw anything except advances and tour support. But that's okay because that's the majority of, that was the majority case with, with, with bands. Um, you usually never really saw any royalties. It was still really tough though. I mean, touring America is at once absolutely incredible. Because, you know, the first time we went over there was 1990, oh, I don't know what it was, sick or something, went over to CMJ to play the CMJ Festival in New York. And we land at JFK Airport, we get picked up in a limousine and we get taken over the Brooklyn Bridge in this limousine with with glasses of really like sh- scotch in our hands, just thinking, oh my God, this is ridiculous. This is amazing. Watching the skyline, you know, come into the distance um, or or um, come in come into view, and it was it was absolutely amazing. And touring America was always the most fun thing that we'd ever done for the first week. And and if and if we were there for longer, then the only way you could really get through it was to be on a tour bus. 
Because if you were in a van, minivan, then you were literally sitting upright for maybe, what, six, seven hours a day while somebody just drove. And that was really tough because the only thing you could do was sleep. I mean, it, it was it was re- that was really hard. And I think that did break a lot of bands because touring is amazing, apart from the bit in between the gigs where you have to get from one gig to another. And, and everybody's cooped up in a small space and they've got to try and get along. Um, and and it, is, it is really hard. But at the same time, I wouldn't mind doing it again. <laughs> I've done it for yes. 10 years. Really. I know. I think, yes, I think everybody loves that two hours on stage or those two hours where you're sort of doing the business. It's the other, yeah. the rest of the day that makes you want to, um, I don't know, <laughs> I was going to say something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the other, it's the other 10 or 10 or 12 hours that you're, that you've, that you've got to try and get through. Um, so it's a weird existence. It's a really odd existence. And you do find that the crew in particular, you know, sound engineers that spend years and years and years touring, they actually find it really hard to be at home because it's a, it's a, it's a completely different life on the road. Yes, I think with those people, and I've always been amazed and impressed with Lemmy from Motorhead because because they, they were, you know, he was one of those people, and they weren't there aren't a lot of them who music was going to be his thing. There was no sort of there was nothing else, and yeah. so it was going to be being in a band doing a gig, playing gigs, and then do an album, do more gigs, do another album, repeat for the rest of your life. And it was like, yeah. God, that is extraordinary until you virtually, you know, I think he was playing, you know, he was still touring in December and sort of died at the end of the month. And you're just thinking, yeah. And, and they also, the following year, also had a load of dates for him lined up for next year, Motorhead. And I'm just yeah. thinking, you know, it was, he did play, you know, there weren't that many people like Lemmy, basically, are there? So, um you have mm. to salute those people. So, look, yes. as the band progressed, did you, I mean, and it was getting towards the, the album in 2004 and Universal Audio, did you feel like things were starting to, you know, come to an end? Was, was it kind of a feeling that you thought this is going to be um, closure soon? Well, well, I mean, let's see now. Universal Audio was the first and only record that we ever put out completely on our own, you know, with with, with chemical underground putting it out all over the world um and that i mean do, do you know what it's, it's really interesting because if you look at the delgado's career it pivots around the year 2000 which is dead center and that it it it, it basically it's an up and a downwards arch which parallels the the music industry at the time now, we we looked at that, you know, we got nominated for the Mercury in 2000 and with the Great Eastern. And then Hate really, you know, was, was the first record to sell less than the one before. And then Universal Audio sold less than the one before. And we're looking at it thinking, oh, my God, we've, we've had a day that it's, 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 it's obviously time to go. We were also getting tired of each other. Stuart Henderson, the bass player, just couldn't take touring anymore he just couldn't do it. it it was that thing where he'd go on tour and he he just he, he would just disappear every day with a pal and go and you know find a bar somewhere and and then come back and he was really unhappy yeah. he was really really unhappy um and and he, he he just said come january of 2005 he just said i, I can't I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I think, you know, I, I certainly felt a sense of relief, but 
I do I do think that maybe it would have been wise to see hiatus rather than completely splitting up because we we misunderstood maybe to some extent the fact that the industry was in decline anyway it wasn't necessarily just us <laughs> yes <laughs> well it's interesting because um yes having spoke to i think it's a guy from james um the guitarist soul he you know they did had phenomenal success you know from mm. that sort of late 80s and especially the early 90s so they that was their period that kind of they did three albums which were fantastic and then they were just on tour and they were sort of you know sitting around the bar and he just said shall we split up because we all really hate each other and everyone mm. went yeah that's good and it's like Right. Well, that's the end of that then, you know, and six years, you know, and six years passed before they sort of got together again. So I think sometimes people do just have that. Actually, we all, you know, none of us get on. We're not enjoying it. And the record sales have started to collapse and we still haven't really made any money. So I think that that side of the industry just, yeah, like you said, you know, because I spoke, there was another band who I thought were amazing in the 80s, the Primitives, and, and I said, well, why did you split up? It's like, well, you know, the music press weren't particularly wanting to talk to us anymore, and our fans weren't particularly wanting to come and see us or even buy our al- albums, and we just were tired, and, and it was like, oh, yes, as a fan, I didn't really appreciate that, you know, but obviously now I listen to people, it's like, God, it is a really tricky one, because, yes, you did five albums, which, again, is quite, you know, it's quite brilliant on a lot of levels, but it, it's a perfect arc with your 2000 album the yeah. great eastern you know and and that kind of parallel to the industry and then the sort of the the, the millennial it wasn't the millennial bug was it but you know no 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 <laughs> i mean it's it is a it's a really fascinating one because it's only it's only when you're you know it's it's only with that long view that you have years years afterwards that you can look back and say ah i see and even though we were in the record industry we still no one had done the stats yet. Nobody was there to, with with the metrics, which of course you can see now. All you have to do is, is Google music format sales, and 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 someone's made the graph, and you can see the height, the the peak of all of the different cassettes. Well, the formats, whether it be cassette or vinyl or 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 CD or, and then downloads. You know, albums have already peaked and gone. We've already seen that go. And now it's just streaming, and we don't know what the the future is going to be, even with this. So it's it's a it's it's been a remarkable uh, twenty years, certainly that I've spent in the industry because I've seen so much change. And to think that the music industry, the modern music industry, only really has been with us since post Second World War, is still a very brief moment, really, in in cultural history. Yes, it is a bleep, isn't it? A bleep. Yeah, to 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 be. To, I mean, live music has existed forever, will exist into the future for, for you know, as long as we are here. But recorded music as an idea and the consumption of that and how much we're prepared to pay for it is now of such interest to people because it's been such a fast-moving, fast-developing um, element. Yes, it's quite interesting because I often, you know, find that um, the way that things get viewed, because at the moment you can do, you know, like we look at the decades of music and you can look at the different bits of it. But as time progresses, it will be like post-war, you know, you'll have, the, you know, Elvis, the Beatles, a few other bands. And that will be that will be kind of all that, you know, the history books will talk about with popular music. Yeah. But at the moment yeah. we look at the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. But actually it's like eventually it will just be like this one, you know, this this one little sentence about pop music. And it'll be like, yeah. Yeah, it'll be distilled into into probably no more than four or five artists, which define an entire generation, probably. 
That is so true. Anyway, that's the third or fourth part of my interview with Emma Pollock from the Delgados. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. And as I said, all the shows have been sort of archived, so you can get them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, I think we're going to have another track. This is, I do believe, taken from a John Peel session, and it's titled Under Canvas, Under Wraps. Indeed. Take it away. Undercover Under Wraps, that is the Delgados, and that's from a John Peel session, I do believe. Anyway, this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Emma, where we were talking about that moment where you're from a band, and then, or in a band, and then you are a solo artist. And I wondered if and how that was emotionally, spiritually, and, um, I don't know, not really physically, but anyway, how did she cope? Emma, well, take it away. Oh, to be honest, it was, it was terrifying. I mean, the 2004 into 2005 Paul and I had just moved into the house that I'm currently sitting in um our son was two um or or uh, yeah our son was two and suddenly this band that we'd been in for for a major portion of our lives 
was was no longer. Paul was uh, Paul had always been training to be a sound engineer, and he he absolutely threw himself into that as soon as we knew that Delgados weren't together anymore. And to be fair to him, he's he's done an, an astonishing job of establishing himself as a pretty wonderful producer up here. Actually, he, he, he works with a lot of brilliant bands. So we. We've got the studio, we've got Chem 19, we've also still got the label. And and at the time, we just thought, well, there's no reason why we can't still put out bands. And and so we were able to continue doing that ever since, although we've only one remaining staff member now and the rest of us are essentially unpaid directors. Um, and I, as a solo artist, decided okay, well, the first port of call has got to be Beggar's Banquet. I've got to go back to Martin Mills and ask him if there's anything I can do. And they, they, they took me on as a solo artist with 4AD, which was amazing. Yes. And so on the creative um, front, obviously when, when you were in the band, was it a bit more of a demographic, uh, not demographic, <laughs> democratic um, sort of process of putting the music, lyrics and everything and the sound together. I mean, I just wondered how it then worked when you, you sort of were no longer part of this kind of unit. Well, the lyrics had always been extremely personal and had never really been even discussed by the rest of the band. So if Alan wrote a song, he wrote the lyric. And if I wrote a song, I wrote the lyric and I would sing it. And if he wrote a song, he would sing it. So there was a very clear-cut um, role there, but um, musically it was all—it was anybody's kind of ball, to be honest. I mean, I would write a song and take it into the rehearsal room, and within an hour it would be dismantled, turned inside out, upside down, and I'd possibly be crying, <laughs> um, and and then it would turn out brilliantly, and I'd think, okay then, uh, maybe that was worth it. <laughs> But it was, um, yeah, I would say that musically it was fairly, yeah, democratic. And the most important thing of all with Tilgaras was that the writing credits were shared equally amongst the four of us. So the investment in this was equal. And even if Alan wrote a song, all of us would share in 25% of ownership of the, the writing credit. And if I wrote a song, everybody would do the same. Um, and so... Basically, Paul and Stuart, who were the other, you know, the, the two that might not write lyrics or melody, they were acting as producers and they were brilliant at it. They were great arrangers. They were Paul's now producer, but he started really doing that in Delgado's. Um, and Alan was always a, a, a really inventive musician, still is. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it, it worked really well artistically, actually. Yes. Because I was just aware, sort of listening, you know, with people like David Bowie, who wasn't sort of part of a band like, you know, like the Beatles or Stones and etc. It must be quite a different kind of way of working when you decide to put an album out and, and sort of have a different group of musicians and you're having a different sort of vaguely thinking, actually, I want this sort of sound, whether it's kind of like the kind of um, young Americans, that Philadelphia soul or going to Berlin and the low period and all sort of just more of a, I suppose, more of a conventional rock sound. So he sort of had, you know, his band. I just wondered how that sort of came comes together when you're sort of in the studio all sort of playing live. Well, um, I would say that the main difference is that I, I'm, I'm the only songwriter, of course, in my band now, <laughs> um, in my in my solo band, um, and making a, an album 
certainly the last one, In Search of Harperfield, which came out in 2016, which was probably the most critically well-received record I've ever made, um, apart from maybe The Great Eastern. That that was a really, really interesting studio album, really, because it was my husband and I, Paul, who just, over the period of four four years, really, if I was being honest, I mean, it took a long time, just... I was in and out, in and out, because my mum was really ill over that period. Um, and I, I wasn't able to kind of focus, you know, say two months or a month solid. I wasn't really able to find the time. So we would go in in, in, in fits and starts and we would work on maybe one or two record, one or two songs at a time. And because we had that time and because we had the ability, the, the time to reflect on what we'd done the month before, I think we were able to make every song as 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 interesting, as as dynamic, as uh, you know, the variety on that album is 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 really interesting. And we didn't really need to get that many musicians in because Paul and I pretty much played everything. I played a lot of the bass as well as guitar, played some piano, um, and I think that really focused way of writing and developing a song was quite luxurious. And not everybody's got the time. Or the you know I, I was able to do it because it's our studio, um, but yeah, very very different process. So basically, half of the Delgados is is essentially what my writing process is now. It's it's essentially Paul and I instead of Paul and I and Alan and Stuart. So yes, it's it must be good. Actually, do yeah. you do you feel a bit like um, Prince in Minneapolis, sort of with you know like being able to do the you know your recording and you have your studio as well? Because obviously <laughs> that must be a perfect mix, and you must think, God, this is it. This is this is us in Glasgow, just basically, yeah, basically Prince. Well, it can be quite hard to get into the studio, <laughs> to be honest. Um, oh, do you know something? Um, it's now two thousand and eighteen, and I, st- I still haven't got any real plans to go into the studio again. So. I'm I'm playing quite a lot live at the moment, which I'm really loving. The great thing about being a solo artist in this in this industry now is that the so the so little stability about it that at least from a live point of view, if I'm offered a gig, I can say to myself, okay, do I want to do this on my own completely, or do I want to do it as a duo? Because one of my uh, band members, Graham Smiley, uh, is 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 also able to kind of join me at gigs, and and we can make a fantastic set out of just the two of us. With with you know he plays bass, and we've got a Roland SPD which can fill in a lot of the gaps. And then there's a full band option of the four of us. So I kind of do all of them. So just just recently, I was playing the, with the duo set with in support to Roddy Frame of Aztec Camera. Uh, in Glasgow, I was playing that, and then this weekend I've got two shows in, you know, Kirkcaldy and and Dunfermline that are just me and my own, with Rachel Sermani and Martin Carr of the Boo Radleys, uh, and then on the fifteenth I'm playing a festival in Glasgow with a full band, so you've got you've got a flexibility there, and for me that's the defining difference between a solo and a band career. Because I get to call the shots and I get to work the budget and I get to decide when I'm going into the studio. And yes, it's a bigger responsibility, but there's so much more freedom in there as well. Fantastic. What would you, you know, um, what would you say to your 18 year old self starting out in music? 
Oh, eh, do you know, I've never really been very good at these questions because I don't think it's ever as simple as that, is it? I mean, I I don't, I mean, I know, do, do you know something? I know, I know these questions are all tongue in cheek. I'm not, I'm not being <laughs> difficult, but, but I, I, I don't, I, I don't regret any of the choices I've made. I mean, I, I maybe wish I had been a bit more disciplined over the past 10 years because I think I've been very slow in making new records if I was being honest I think I've been a bit backwards in coming forward about getting myself an agent and promoting myself because I, I feel really uncomfortable with that I currently don't have a live agent so all the all the gigs I get are come directly to me um it's a I think I wish I just maybe had a bit more confidence in pushing myself forward and did some more touring south of the border instead of concentrating in Scotland so yeah I, I think maybe what would it say to me 18 year old self um just be a bit bolder maybe take it and and just run with it don't don't be so shy and retiring I think I think in the music industry you really do have to be quite gung-ho and quite thick-skinned Yes, you must be very thick-skinned. I'm <laughs> not sure. I, I, I think that's the trouble. I don't think I am. <laughs> yes. But it's interesting because normally, because, you know, I'm always kind of curious with that, that question, vaguely question. Um, I'm vaguely curious. But normally um, people say, I wished I'd enjoyed it more. I wished we'd practice more and I wished I hadn't taken so many drugs. So I think that's kind of... But sometimes people do have other ones. It's sometimes... Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's just kind of... I'm. I'm, uh, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. I'm still sort of learning about life, and you sort of make mistakes and think, oh, what would I say to an eighteen-year-old's, you know, my eighteen-year-old self if they wanted to hear? And I suppose it's just kind of those kind of curious things because sometimes people yeah. are quite clear, you know, especially with the music industry, because the one thing that a lot of bands didn't really understand was the publishing and, you know, the ownership of music. So they signed yeah. deals and then sort of realised, oh, actually, we don't really own the music anymore. And so some people I sort of talk about their back catalogue and it's a bit of a sort of difficult subject because it's like we, we don't own it because rec this record label or publisher owns it. And so we've still got no right on it. And you can see and hear that they kind of feel kind of upset because they would love to sort of put it out and sort of archive it. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing now. I know the I think it was the Orchids have kind of been releasing a lot of their early stuff and all their demos and various other bands from 30 years ago you know getting their John Peel sessions all put out and I think I think that's what a lot of people have enjoyed you know as they hit 60 just to um, sort of wrap that up and have some nice sleeve notes really. Yeah yeah I mean there's no doubt that I mean, we, we were really lucky. If there's one thing I'd say, I've always been really curious about the legality of music because I've kind of written a lot of the contracts for Chemical Underground since day one. And uh, we were we, we were never under any illusion as to the way that all of that worked. I mean, we, we made it, I, I, I made it a point of principle of understanding exactly what was happening with all of our rights. Otherwise, we wouldn't have um, been able to do what we did with Chemical Underground. Uh, so I was always really interested in that that side of it because the the machinations of the music industry are just as important as the creative side you've 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 kind of got to know what you're investing in when you sit down and write a song you've got to know what's what's going to happen to that um if you sign a publishing deal for example now you know the first 10 years when Delgados were together every single album of ours was published and yes, you know, we've only had one of those albums back and the others are still under the control of the publisher. But it doesn't matter because because 
I'm not sure it's always a great thing to have control to, to own your catalogue because it costs money to press records and put them out. And if and if you try to do that yourself 20 years after, you might not have the resources. Um, so it's it's never clear cut. I mean, as long as you understand it, as long as you understand. And also with publishing deals back in the day, they were the only reason that Delgados were able to survive. They were the only reason that we were able to to live because we got advances that allowed us to pay the pay the mortgage. Um, you know, now I don't have a publishing deal and that suits me fine because I'm at, I'm at a different point in my life. But uh, it, 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 the answers differ depending on where you are and where the industry is at the time. Yes. God, you could definitely write a book, couldn't you? Because you're, you're sort of basically on both sides of the uh, yeah. both sides of the, the label and the band and the creative side. So it's kind of interesting, your brain, you know, I can see why your degree is in physics. You know, you, <laughs> can, you can hold those kind of two, you can hold different concepts because I don't think a lot of people can. So that's kind of, you know, so you're in a good position there. So you're very sort of level headed and can kind of see the argument and counter argument and then come to a civilised position where everyone yeah. shakes hand and has a cup of tea. <laughs> and feel and feel happy with it rather than sort yeah. of jaded and and annoyed but not really yeah. understanding why they're annoyed and not understanding well you know you blew a lot of money and actually you know that record company is still in the minus figure <laughs> yeah i mean if, if if there's one piece of advice i'd give to anybody going into the music industry right now i would say yes get a lawyer but also get that lawyer to sit down with you and explain the contract because it's it's really important that you've got the that you've got a handle on how music law works because I mean the thing that I always say to kind of people is is look you know for every recording that's ever made in a studio there are two elements to it there's the sound recording and there's the song itself and that that can be any it can be any combination you could go in and, and record an Elvis song and uh, you would own the recording, but Elvis's uh, estate is still on the rise to the song, you know, for, for example. But but the majority of bands they they still record their own material, so they own they own the, the the master recording and they also own the song, unless you go get it published, in which case you've licensed the song out for twenty odd years. But but anyway, it's it's dead important, you know. People need to understand the distinction. Yes. That is good. And luckily, you didn't do a, a Fleetwood Mac with the band and the dynamics, because I know from, <laughs> you know, like with a lot of these bands, the relationship thing can be so tricky. And yet yeah. you managed to sort of do that without any any disaster, which is which you must go, God, we've done it. We've been through so much. Yeah, we have. But I wouldn't say that we've come out unscathed. I mean, the relationships between the four of us, I mean, Paul and I are still married, which is no no minor kind of no small feat. I mean, to to have gone through ten years of the Delgados and living in a tour bus together for much of our time, basically going to work together every day for ten years was was getting really, really, really hard. Um, and and now, yes, our lives are Paul and I's lives are still very, very, very much linked in our working lives because I manage a studio, but at least I don't I don't go. I'm I'm not I'm not working in the same room as him every day. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that our relationship with the rest of them is 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 absolutely without its problems. I think 
there's a there's a great deal of distance amongst us or between us now. I, we don't see each other very often anymore. The, yes. the four because actually it's interesting because as a fan you know people sometimes I hear other you know people saying oh we should wish you'd reform and I'm always thinking you know what what I suppose my favorite band were the Smiths and obviously that's a bit become a bit tricky with age for obvious <laughs> reasons and the one thing you never want as a fan I never any the one thing I wouldn't want as a fan is them to reform at all you know it's hard enough at, at, you know to understand Morrissey uh, let alone play their music, and um, yeah, but the, but that's the point I was trying to make. But you, one would wish that the band might be able to get on, you know, meet up at Christmas and have a nice time. But obviously, actually, the Smiths are such a bad uh, example of that now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> for so many reasons. But um, yeah, so so obviously, you know, yes, reform is definitely out the window. But even. Even so, you you wish the members might still have nice times together at least once a year, which I know sounds a bit of a strange thing. But as a fan, uh, you know, when you're really obsessed with a band and you're obsessed with the sound and the music and everything means so much, you hope that the members who made it at least are quite nice to each other. And I guess that doesn't always happen, does it? No, it doesn't, because with with the music industry meaning uh, so much to or not, not meaning so much. What I mean is with the music meaning so much to people and the age that they were when they formed the band, because most bands are formed when they're, people are in their, their early 20s or late teens. I mean, this is a really volatile time in people's lives. It's, it's, it's a really precious time. It's a time when they devote everything that they have to it. They, they, know, they don't have a family yet, usually. They, they, they don't have a house yet. They don't. Uh, they don't have much money. They probably put it all into doing this thing, and if it doesn't work out, and it usually doesn't work out, because somewhere along the line, people put throw their hands up and say, "Oh my God, I I thought this was going to be brilliant. This is terrible," and they they they, they run off and, and get what they might call a proper job, um, which what they're actually looking for is a sense of calm and control again, because you can very quickly lose that. When you're in a band with another three or four people and you're all vying for your voice to be heard. And those those very tight relationships and that music that you loved, that you made together, can very quickly become soured. And, you know, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a treacherous, treacherous path to go down. But I would never dissuade anybody from doing it because it's also a really fantastic thing to stand in front of an audience and, and play them your songs. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing. Indeed, wise words. That is Emma Pollock from the Delgados and also now a solo artist. If you want to find out any more information about her and what she's up to, she has got a very good uh, website, which has got all the information on. If you just go to emmapollock.com, you'll find uh, new shows, music videos, Photoshop and much, much more. But that is marvellous. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. Thank you for listening, if you still are. Tune in next week. I will have another special guest. I'm going to leave you with some more music from the Delgados. Have a great week.
you threw me a punch instead Where's your support tonight? Seems that they have taken flight I was hoping to welcome you aboard But the raft becomes lifeboat and I get ahead She gets ahead I screamed on the corner My wheels to perform
inside. 